Open your Bibles with me to John 14. One of my earliest memories, it might actually be my earliest memory, I'm not entirely sure, but I was very, very young. I was probably not much older than Grace. And we were on a family outing at a park. Uh, We were living over in the Scranton, Pennsylvania area uh, when I was very young. And uh, we were at Lackawanna State Park and enjoying the day together as a family. It would have been me and, at that time, just one brother, I think. And um, we were just, it was a summer day, and I don't remember much of the day other than all of a sudden, my family wasn't there. Uh, It was a lot of people. It must have been a holiday weekend or or something during the summer. And, um, you know, during, at least back then, uh, there were a couple of, of lakes there in, in Lackawanna State Park, and a, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of people would just go and, and sunbathe next to the lakes. And there were a lot of people out over the, the beach, sandy, sandy beach, and all of a sudden, my family wasn't among them. And I didn't know where they were, and I freaked out, and I'm starting to cry. And my memory is of that moment, crying, not knowing where my family is. I'm standing here on the beach next to a lake in Lackawanna State Park in the sand, and I don't know where mom and dad are. And uh, a nice lady came along and, and saw me crying and had pity on my poor soul and uh, helped me find my mommy and daddy. And uh, I remember my dad, he... I'm sure I can only imagine now, being the parent, I can only imagine, you know, the frantic, where's my kid, you know? And I saw Dad smile as he saw me, and uh, all was right in the world again. Have you had that moment of, of panic being lost? Mom and Dad have abandoned me. They left me. Have you had that moment? No, it's just me in the world. Well... Let me tell you, it is a frantic thing. It is not a pleasant thing. In our text this morning, Jesus reminds us, Jesus promises us that he is not going to leave us alone as orphans. Here in the Upper Room Discourse, we've been in the Upper Room Discourse now for several weeks, and the whole point of this Upper Room Discourse is Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He's about to leave. And he has a lot of last-minute things that they need to know before he leaves. Some of the first words that Jesus said to his disciples after Judas left, John 13, 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus is going away, and the disciples cannot follow. And this is really tough news for the disciples. After all, this Jesus movement has hardly gotten off the ground. There is still a lot of opposition to Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, it's starting to look like this kingdom of the Messiah, which had been promised throughout the Old Testament, it's starting to look like this kingdom is going to take a while to really plant itself. And now the Messiah is talking about leaving? This is terrible news. But Jesus' message to his disciples here in the upper room is not only that he is going away. 
Jesus also promises in John 14 and verse number 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus comes back to this promise over and over throughout the Upper Room Discourse. We're going to consider this morning four proofs that show that Jesus is not leaving us as orphans. Jesus is going to give us these four promises that show he is not leaving us as orphans. And as we hear these truths, pray this morning that your heart would be established by the Holy Spirit in the knowledge of Jesus, in the love of Jesus, in the peace of Jesus, and in the joy of Jesus. It is good news for your soul this morning that Jesus has not left you as orphans. The first proof that we see in the text, the first proof that Jesus gives us that he is not leaving us as orphans, we find in verses 18 to 20. Notice with me John 14, verses 18 to 20. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus promises his disciples that he will come to them. Now, as Christians... I think we can get the impulse to hear those words and jump straight to the, the rapture or straight to the second coming. We can imagine Jesus is talking directly to us when Jesus says, I'm going to come back to you. I don't actually think that that's what's going on here in the text, though. Notice carefully what Jesus says. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. So when is it that the world will see Jesus no more? Well, starting when, when uh, Joseph of Arimathea takes the body of Jesus off of the cross and places it into his own tomb. All the world scorned Jesus as he hung on that cross. But after he was placed in that tomb, he was hid from the eyes of the world. And yet what happened on the third day? Did Jesus stay in that tomb? No, he rose. He rose from the dead, but he did not present himself again to the world. He appeared to his disciples. Notice again what our text says. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. You know, I'm reminded of, of Paul's uh, succinct, short declaration of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You probably remember the text. Paul writes, For I delivered uh, uh, to you as of first importance what I also received. What is this gospel? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And He was buried. And He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. In this presentation of the gospel, we have two essential facts and two proofs which validate those facts. Fact number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What's the proof? Jesus was buried. Fact number two, Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What's the proof? He appeared to Peter and the other twelve. Notice the text. 
Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. When Jesus tells his disciples that they will see him, he's not looking forward to the second coming. He's not looking forward to the rapture. He's talking about what will happen in just a little while. In just a few days, though the world will see Jesus no more, the disciples will see Jesus. This is the proof that Jesus has not left his disciples as orphans. So before Jesus appeared to the disciples, after he had died, after he was buried, before they knew that he had risen from the dead, what did the disciples feel? What were the disciples thinking? You know, we read a few weeks ago the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. When we read that text, we saw that the disciples felt like Jesus had abandoned them. They were feeling lonely. They were feeling confused. They were feeling listless in this world. They had had their rabbi taken from them and murdered in front of their eyes. Is this what Jesus wants? Is this what Jesus wants from his disciples for them to be confused and lonely and listless in this world? Is this what he wants from you? Does Jesus want his disciples to be wandering around and aimless? No. Jesus wants his disciples to know the truth. The truth that he has not left us as orphans. So what does Jesus do? He appears to Peter. He appears to the twelve. Paul will go on to say that he appeared to more than 500 disciples at once. Jesus showed himself to his disciples. He did not show himself to the world, but he showed himself to his disciples. Jesus came back to his disciples. And seeing the resurrected Jesus changed everything for the disciples. Now he's alive. And because he is alive, Jesus' disciples have their life in him. And not only that, Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In other words, there is now a new spiritual kind of relationship that Jesus' disciples have with Jesus himself. Just as the Father and the Son mutually indwell one another, so Jesus is in you and you are in Jesus. Last week we talked about the Spirit of God, the Comforter. That Spirit of Jesus is uniting us to Jesus as He is uniting the, Spirit, uh, the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. Perhaps this morning you're here and you feel for all the world as though Jesus has abandoned you and left you as an orphan. After all, he hasn't appeared to you. What good does it do you to read these words on a page? How is this promise in this text comfort to your soul that you have not been abandoned? Brothers and sisters, do you hear the gospel? Do you hear the words of the gospel? Paul proclaims the gospel to us. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. That's our gospel. Jesus doesn't have to appear to you in order for you to know that Jesus has not abandoned you as an orphan. No, Jesus kept his promise. 
In fact, that promise is a part of our very gospel. It is part of the gospel that you believe and that you proclaim. Notice, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, in that day, you will know, verse number 20. Just like Jesus is working for your belief, he said over and over and over that you may believe, so Jesus is working for your knowledge, for your conviction about what is true. Do you know? Do you know that Jesus has not left you as an orphan? Do you know that Jesus died for your sins and was buried? Do you know that he was raised from the dead and that he appeared to the disciples? If you know that, then you know that he has not left you as an orphan. Jesus has not left you as an orphan. He returned. He showed himself to his disciples, alive and well and better than ever. And we know this truth to be true. We have believed in this gospel. Jesus offers his disciples a second proof. A second proof that he has not abandoned them as orphans. Notice verses 22 through 24. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but is the Father's who sent me. So Judas is a little bit confused about Jesus' statement that he's going to reveal himself to his disciples, but he's not going to reveal himself to the world. Judas is still thinking about all of these Old Testament promises about the coming kingdom of the Messiah. How can the Messiah establish his kingdom the kingdom of Israel, the restored kingdom of Israel, how can the Messiah establish that kingdom and yet not reveal himself to the world? This is one of those questions that it seems the disciples just could not wrap their minds around, even up until that last day before Jesus ascended to the Father. Jesus, uh, the disciples asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples are confused. Judas is confused. The disciples have in their mind this certain chronology that they have learned, a right chronology, a true chronology that they have learned from the Old Testament. The Messiah comes, the Messiah preaches the good news, and the Messiah sets up his kingdom. How can the Messiah be here and yet the kingdom not be here? That's the puzzling part. That's the question the disciples just don't understand. How can the Messiah reveal himself only to the disciples and not reveal himself to the whole world? After all, you remember the great messianic promises, such as the one from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 9. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Judas is confused. How on earth is Jesus the Messiah going to establish a kingdom that fills the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea if Jesus is not going to be seen by the world. 
Do you feel the weight of that question? Do, do, do you feel the, the tension in the disciples' minds, what's leaving them confused? They know the Old Testament prophecies and they don't see how that fits. But Jesus explains that he has more in this plan. That kingdom day will come. But before that day comes, there will be a time on this earth when there will be those, both those who love Jesus and those who do not love Jesus walking around on this world. The kingdom is coming, but before then there is an age in which some men love Jesus and some men don't. During that age, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. There's a delay in the coming of the kingdom. And during that delay, the father and the son will dwell with believers in a unique and in a spiritual way. When Jesus says that the Father and the Son will come and make their home with Jesus, Jesus is talking about this special spiritual relationship which he will have with his disciples. Jesus went away to prepare a dwelling place for us. He prepared that, that place by dying on a cross for our sins and rising from the dead. And now he comes to us and dwells with us. He makes his home with us spiritually. And that spiritual home, that spiritual abiding that Jesus has with us, it is a sort of guarantee, is a sort of down payment on the kingdom. The kingdom day is coming. It's going to be here. And in that day, Jesus will not only make his home with us spiritually, he will make his home with us physically. John writes in Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the day that Judas is expecting. And that day is coming. But in the meanwhile, we have this down payment sort of experience this anticipation of the coming kingdom with Jesus dwelling in our hearts. And so the good news in Jesus' answer to Judas is that even though that kingdom is delayed, Jesus has not left us as orphans. We have a, a down payment kind of experience on the dwelling place of God with us, even spiritually, until that day. We don't have to wait for the kingdom to arrive in all of its glory for us to experience the dwelling of God with us. Through the Spirit, we have a real, genuine, spiritual taste of that promise. Do you see the love of Jesus for you in this promise? This isn't just a fact. This isn't just a, a promise that's thrown out there. This is the heart of Jesus for you. This is the love of Jesus for you. He will not leave you as an orphan precisely because he loves you. He dwells with you through his spirit, not out of obligation or duty, but because he loves you. He loves you as his own. And so verse number 23 says, we love him. 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come and make our home with him. The response to Jesus for not leaving us as orphans in this world, but for dwelling with us, is n- the right response isn't just knowing certain things. It's not just knowing the promises. It's loving him who cares for us in this way. So, Jesus is giving us proof that he has not left us as an orphan. First, he promised he will return. And since he did return, he fulfilled that promise. We can know and we can believe he has not left us as orphans. Second, he has not left us as orphans because he abides with us. And this leads us to a response of love for him because of his care for us. The third proof that Jesus has not left us as an orphan, we find in verse 27. Verse 27, which is our verse of the month. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. By way of aside, I do apologize. It is our verse of the month, and it happens to be a challenging verse, only because that middle sentence, not as the world gives do I give to you, that is a very awkward sentence in English because uh, the subject and the object are in the wrong place. So we might normally say that in this way. I do not give peace to you as the world gives. But what we have is not as the world gives do I give to you. Who's giving? Well, Jesus. Uh, so it's all, but Jesus isn't until the end. I give. It's, it's just flip-flopped. And that's what kind of sets our minds crazy as we're trying to memorize it. So that's my apology. It's a tough verse for that reason, but it's a good verse. It's a marvelous promise, and so we should memorize it. It's God's word, so we should meditate on it. Jesus promises to leave us his peace. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is leaving his peace with us? I already told a story about my childhood. I grew up in the 90s, uh, and it was popular when I was growing up in the 90s. My friends and I would, to be cool, we would say when we were leaving, hey, peace out, right? That was the expression. It was a way of saying goodbye, peace out. Apparently, this was a a carryover from the hippie movement of the 50s to 70s, which I don't know anything about. (laughs) At any rate, we wanted to be cool, and so we said goodbye by saying peace out, right? Now, Jesus is getting at something sort of similar here, but way more profound. And to get to the significance of Jesus' words, we need to step back to a time before the 90s, and actually a few centuries before the time of Jesus. We also need to cross cultures. In ancient Israel, in the Old Testament times, Israel had this word in their language, you know it, it is the word shalom. It was the common word of greeting. It would be used both to say hello and to say goodbye. The word, in a sense, it means peace. But not peace in the sense of a mere absence of, of conflict. Uh, so that's, a, uh, that's a, a, a noun, a word of greeting, shalom. Uh, there's a verb that connects to that noun. The verb is shalem. And that verb, shalem, means to be whole, to be complete, to be healthy, to be unharmed. It can also mean to cease conflict, kind of like our word peace. 
But Jesus is using a word here that's far more broad and far more profound than simply to not be at conflict with someone. There's this idea of wholeness, of completeness, perhaps even a sense of blessedness in this word shalom. When you greeted someone with this word shalom, when you bid someone farewell, you were extending to them something of a blessing. You were saying with Aaron in Numbers 6, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. And Jesus is leaning into this rich meaning when he says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. He's not simply saying, I'm telling you all goodbye. He's not saying to his disciples, peace out. He's, com- he's blessing them with completeness and fullness. He's promising them genuine peace, genuine wholeness and prosperity to their souls. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, Jesus says. It's simply profound to hear Jesus say to you, my peace I give to you. Jesus is peace. Jesus is the peacemaker. My peace I give to you. Jesus extends his peace, his wholeness to you and to me. This is not Jesus simply pronouncing words over them. Jesus is promising his disciples real, genuine, divine shalom. What kind of peace does the world bring? Well, when Jesus says these words in the context of first century Palestine, the first thing the disciples would have thought was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. What is Roman peace? It's the end of conflict promised by the edge of the sword. If you stir up trouble, if you start a conflict, you can expect the judgment of Rome. In fact, plenty often you could expect the nails of a cross. Pax Romana was enforced by the edge of the sword. But that kind of a peace is quite fragile, isn't it? It does nothing to calm the soul. It does nothing to ease the guilty conscience. It does nothing to actually produce goodwill between men, much less to satisfy the wrath of God. So what does Jesus do for his disciples? He promises them he will not leave them as orphans. He promises as a proof that he will not leave them as orphans, he promises his shalom through his spirit. When Jesus leaves his spirit with his disciples, he leaves them with his peace. He bestows upon them all of the life and the well-being and the end of hostility and peace that is God himself. My peace I give to you. How do we respond to the shalom of Jesus? What does it look like to genuinely receive and to trust in the shalom of God? 
Jesus tells us. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You know, this is actually the second time Jesus has uttered those words. Back in verse number one of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. We respond to the peace of Jesus by trusting in this promise of peace. Jesus is repeating himself. Twice he says this. Pay attention. This is important. Let not your hearts be troubled. We receive his peace by calming our hearts, by trusting that he has in fact made peace between us and God. We hear the promise of peace. We hear the promise of blessing. And we believe and we trust in Jesus' words. We let not our hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. And all of this is only possible because of the Spirit of God who abides with us. Pastor, that's a little idealistic, don't you think? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're struggling with worry, anxiety, not peace. And if you struggle with these fears in your heart over this and that and the other thing, you know how hard it is to receive this instruction. Jesus instructs you, let not your hearts be troubled. But we need to remember Jesus is not simply sitting across the counselor's desk, looking at you and commanding you, saying, stop it. Stop worrying. Stop being afraid. Not letting our hearts be troubled. Releasing that worry and anxiety and fear about our lives that so often builds up in our hearts is not simply a matter of stopping it. And this is why Jesus gives us his peace. This is why the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Jesus not only promises us peace, he actually gives the Spirit of peace who cultivates in your heart the peace of God. You know, a lot of times as we struggle with anxiety, as we struggle with fear, as we struggle with worry in our own hearts, we sort of expect this promise to take the form of just kind of being overwhelmed by a sense of peace and well-being all sort of supernaturally. And certainly by the mercy of God, we can sit back and experience that calming sense that God gives to our hearts. But there are a lot more times than not when peace looks way more like a fight. There are times when our souls are simply turbulent and we are being so shaken by our circumstances that we find no way to stop being overwhelmed by the anxieties and the fears. And we don't feel any kind of overwhelming sense of peace rushing over us. And in those times, Jesus is not failing you with his promise of peace. At those times, peace in our souls does not simply arrive by sitting back and waiting for some, some feeling rushing over us. Peace comes to your soul by you reminding your soul of the promises of God. The psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul? 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Notice he doesn't say, sit back and wait for the feeling of peace. What does he say? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation. When you hear Jesus promise, my peace I give you, do not imagine that somehow that means you're always in every moment of anxiety going to feel a sense of peace washing over you. That's not the promise of Jesus. The peace that Jesus is holding out for you is often found in the discouraging moments of your life by simply holding on to the promises that he has made you, confident that he will come through. The proof that Jesus has not left you as an orphan. He promises you his shalom, his peace. He calls on you to believe his promise, to anchor your soul, not in your feelings of anxiety, but in the promise, his spirit is with you. And not only is his spirit with you, he's working this for your good. And not only is he working this for your good, but he's coming back to set all things right. So receive his shalom, receive his peace by trusting in his promises. He could only give you his peace if he has not left you as an orphan. So since he has established peace between you and God, since he has given you his spirit of peace, you can know he has not left you as an orphan. And you can walk not in worry and in anxiety, but you can walk in his peace. There's a fourth promise that we see in this text that Jesus has not left us as orphans. Verses 28 through 31, Jesus says, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The proof that Jesus gives us that he is not leaving us as an orphan is that he is going away. What? That sounds a little backwards, doesn't it? I agree. At first, it does seem a little backwards. I confess, I had to spend a little time in this part of the text trying to figure out what is Jesus, how is this a promise? How is this a promise that he's not leaving us as an orphan? It's clearly what the text is saying, but how does this work? Notice, Jesus begins by saying, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Again, this is, this is what Jesus has been repeating throughout this upper room discourse. Jesus said back in chapter 14 and verse number 3, uh, I, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Uh, we just read verse number 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is going away. Jesus is coming back. This is the ongoing theme of, of the upper room discourse. And all of this coming and going precisely because of who Jesus is. Right? Jesus, Philip had asked, verses 9 to 11, 
uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, it's enough for us. And what does Jesus say? Um, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Again, down in verse number 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The point is, Jesus is in, Jesus is from the Father. He's in this unique relationship with the Father. He is in the Father, and the Father is in him. He uniquely displays the glory of the Father. And, and Jesus did not, not begin to exist the moment that he was conceived in Mary's womb. No, the eternal Son has always existed. He is eternally begotten of the Father. And so it is entirely appropriate, it is entirely fitting, it is entirely necessary for the eternal Son to return to the Father. And the Son returns to the Father not in death, but after the resurrection at the ascension. Jesus is going to return to the Father. And there's this, a sense in which this Son returning to the Father is Jesus returning to where He belongs. Jesus is from the Father, and so it only makes sense that Jesus would return to the Father. Now, here's the important point. Here's, here's where this makes sense. What should the response of the disciples be if they understood who Jesus is and the importance of his return to the Father? How should his disciples respond to this news that he's going back to the Father? Consider an example, an illustration. Sakiko right now is traveling in Japan. Imagine Sakiko spending these weeks over there in Japan with her family. There's a real sense in which Sakiko is back home with her family in Japan, speaking her mother tongue. She is in a sense where she belongs. And yet there is a real sense in which her home is here in Albion. This is where her husband is. This is where her sons are. This is where her church family is. Her life is now here in America. And so as good and right as it is for Sakiko to be in Japan for a time, it is also right for her to return here to her home, to her husband. How does her family in Japan respond when she packs her bags and plans to come back here to America, to her home? Surely they're sad. Surely they will miss her. But if they are completely obsessed in their sadness, if all they can do is think about their loss when Sakiko leaves, who are they thinking about? They're not really thinking about Sakiko. They're thinking about themselves. They're concerned with themselves. They're not concerned with Sakiko. With that picture in mind, Listen again to Jesus' words. You hear me say to you, I am going away. 
and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. It is good news for Jesus that he is returning to the Father. He is from the Father, and so it is only fitting that he return to the Father. But the disciples are all upset and crying and, up and, and complaining that Jesus is going away. All they can think about is how much they're going to miss Jesus when he's gone. And yet Jesus has been making promise after promise after promise of the blessings that will come to the disciples when he goes away. It is going to be good not only for Jesus, but also for the disciples when Jesus goes away. They are going to receive the spirit of Jesus who will be with them forever. This is good news for the disciples. They are going to receive the peace of Jesus. They are going to receive blessing after blessing from Jesus. And yet all the disciples can think about is how much they're going to miss Jesus. Their eyes are turned completely inward on themselves. And so Jesus gives them a mild rebuke. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going back to the Father. In other words, the disciples are actually not showing genuine love for Jesus in their response of sorrow. They're so wrapped up in their own loss instead of believing in the promises of Jesus and rejoicing in those promises. But I love this. Jesus is not giving up on his disciples. Just like Jesus said back in chapter 13, verse number 19, I'm working for your faith. So Jesus says again here, now I have told you before it takes place, verse number 29, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus is continuing to work for the faith of his disciples. We already know that believing in Jesus looks like receiving the peace of God, trusting in him rather than being full of, of worry and, and sadness. Now we're seeing belief looks like rejoicing in Jesus, rejoicing that Jesus is with the Father, rejoicing that Jesus is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, the proof that Jesus has not left us as orphans is that he's up there with the Father. Because he, has, because he is there, he has poured out his spirit upon us here. Because he is there, he is here with us by his spirit. He has given us all of these spiritual blessings precisely because he is there with the Father. And so we rejoice that Jesus is in heaven with the Father because that means that he is here with us through his spirit. He is dwelling with us even now through his spirit, precisely because he is physically in heaven. We rejoice that Jesus is in heaven with the Father, because that means he has left us with his peace. He didn't just give us an empty, meaningless promise. His promise, my peace I leave to you, was not as meaningless as ours, our have a good week as we say goodbye to one another. No, Jesus actually left us with his peace because he left us with his spirit. And so we rejoice 
that Jesus is with the Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' word to you this morning is a promise. He has not left you as an orphan. And the proof that he has not left you as an orphan is that he returned to his disciples. He rose again from the dead and he appeared to them, proving his life. The disciples saw Jesus alive and now we live in him. We know the gospel. We believe the gospel. We believe that Jesus is alive. The proof that Jesus has not left you as an orphan is that he is abiding with you as a guarantee, as a down payment on eternity. The Father and the Son abide with you through the Spirit. And this is proof that you have not been left as an orphan. And we respond to this proof by loving Jesus for the care that he takes of us. The proof that Jesus has not left you as an orphan is that he has left his shalom with you. You have the peace of God in your heart precisely because Jesus has not left you as an orphan. So don't worry. Don't be driven by anxiety. Instead, trust his peace. Receive his peace. Don't let your heart be troubled. And the proof that Jesus has not left you as an orphan is that today he is with the Father. He is there with the Father, which is fitting for him until he returns and establishes his kingdom on earth. So rejoice. Rejoice that he is there. It is good news for your soul that he is there with the Father because he is also here with you by his Spirit. We serve a glorious, good Jesus who loves us and has not left us as orphans. So let us respond to this good Jesus with faith, with love, with trust, and with joy. In other words, let us walk in the spirit of Jesus who dwells in our hearts through faith. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Father, we thank you that 